and welcome back to this week's edition of Problematic Women, a show and podcast that showcases strong conservative women and highlights the hypocrisy among feminists and on the left. My name is Kelsey Harkness. I'm a senior news producer with The Daily Signal. And I'm Bree Payton, staff writer at The Federalist in front of The Daily Signal. So we've got a great show for you today. We have a lot to unpack, a lot to cover. But first, Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton just never seems to go away. But this time, it wasn't actually by choice. So, Brie, a New York Times reporter, her name is Amy Chozik, is out with a new book. And this book is not flattering for Hillary Clinton or her campaign. The first thing I want to say about this book is that it's written by a supposedly credible author who followed Clinton on the campaign for years. And yet, most people listening or watching right now probably have heard very little, if not nothing, about it. How hypocritical is that when you compare it to Michael Wolf, who is not a credible author, who wrote an unflattering book about Donald Trump? Think about how much airtime he yep. got when compared to this. Yeah, I think there absolutely is a discrepancy in the amount of coverage and the amount of attention that these two campaign books have received. I mean, to be honest, I hadn't even heard about the book <laughs> until we were prepping for the show and you pointed out um, Kate's piece, which we're going to sp- explain in a second and tease out a little bit. But until I read that piece, because you sent it to me, I honestly had not heard of this book. Uh, and I think the reason why we haven't been hearing about it is because it doesn't fangirl Hillary Clinton, right? Like it doesn't make her this pantsuit wearing feminist hero. Uh, and I think the reason why we got just wall-to-wall coverage of Michael Wolff, despite the fact that he is a crazy person who violates a lot of tenets of journalistic ethics, makes a lot of really wild claims um, about Donald Trump, about Nikki Haley, about all these crazy things. Um, and his book has you know little to no attribution, is riddled with spelling errors, yet we get tons of coverage of it because I think the media just you know, is so willing to accept and believe anything negative that they hear about Donald Trump without question. Yet when someone says something not super like, oh, applauding of Hillary Clinton, they just ignore it. And I think that that's what's playing out here. So we are going to talk about the book. The book is called Chasing Hillary, 10 Years, Two Presidential Campaigns and One Intact Glass Ceiling. So in it, uh, Amy, the author, really makes the, the argument that Hillary Clinton is not the feminist hero that she kind of pretends to be. Um, here, here's one excerpt from it. Um, quote, the thing about a mostly female press corp was that Hillary likes men, preferably the damaged, witty, brilliant kind. She told aides she knew women reporters would be harder on her. We'd be jealous and catty and more spiteful than men. We'd be impervious to her flirt to her flirting and she also she also wrote that for all the lesbian theories hillary enjoys nothing more than flirting with a handsome preferably straight man so supposedly hillary gave preference um in in press sessions to male good-looking male reporters actually she wrote that she enjoyed getting into it with ed henry of fox news so i found that interesting Um, The book also details instances of the Clinton campaign not treating women who work for it well. Um, And throughout the book, you really just get a sense that the New York Times is not as objective as they claim to be in their coverage of Hillary Clinton because this is the reporter writing the book who was writing all those articles we're reading about Hillary Clinton during the campaign. Um, Take a read of it for yourself, but if you don't want to... 
then my wonderful colleague at the Daily Signal wrote a really good summary that um, that that kind of catches you up on a lot of the more interesting allegations that that are made in the book. Um, this article on the Daily Signal is called Three Revelations from New York Times Reporters Book on Hillary Clinton um, by Katrina Trinko. I encourage you to check it out. We actually had one of the um, former Clinton campaign workers respond in detail to some of the allegations that were made on the book. That's also on the Daily Signal. Check it out. Spread the news because when compared to the attention that Michael Wolff's book got about President Trump, I think this one deserves some attention as well. Absolutely. So next up, congressmen say that they can't afford an apartment in D.C. An increasing number of House lawmakers have turned into professional squatters at night, according to the New York Post, hitting the sack in their Capitol Hill offices on everything from cots and closets to futons stashed behind constituent couches to save a few bucks during the work week. Washington is too expensive. Congressman Dan Donovan, who credits the cot that he sleeps in in a tiny alcove in his office as the reason he is able to serve in Congress while still paying his New York City housing costs. (laughs) So, Brie, I take it you're not a fan of members of Congress sleeping in their offices. No, I'm not a fan of this at all. Listen, I thought it was cute when Paul Ryan did this. Like a decade ago. Anything Paul Ryan does is cute. I think he's, well, I used to think that, but now I'm, listen, it was cute when he did this 10 years ago because he was kind of the, I feel like he was the one that started this trend of people, you know, doing that. So he's doing it. I'm thinking how cute. Uh, Next thing you know, Republican controlled Congress passes omnibus after omnibus riddled with trillions of dollars over the past couple of years worth of pork, worth of waste, worth of fraud and abuse. in debt. Yeah, putting us in debt. Uh, You know, I think that this whole act of, oh, I'm so fiscally responsible with my own money that I sleep in my office is so hypocritical. I think they need to treat our tax dollars the way that they treat their salaries. You know, they need to be stingy with our money as well as theirs. So I just think that this whole charade is nothing (laughs) more than that. I completely agree with you, Brie. I love your take. But to play devil's advocate... House members receive a salary of $174,000 a year, and that salary has not increased in nearly a decade. And one bedroom in New York City, you and I, New York City, uh, excuse me, DC, you and I both know this, costs $2,000. Granted, they can maybe um, bunk up, share rooms, share basements. Um, there, there might be cheaper ways to do it, do that, but an actual one bedroom unit in an apartment building in Washington, DC costs $2,000 a month. And you have to also consider that for most of them, this isn't their main residence. Most of them have mortgages back home. They have families back home. They have their children's education to pay for. And I know $174,000 is a lot of money. Like I, I'd love to be making that much money, but, um, they, to pay for to pay for their Two whole households. family, I imagine some of their wives might not be working. It's a lot, and I I understand their desire to save money, but I also think they need to be called out on that front. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, I just think that this whole thing is so ridiculous. And even if you do, you know, need to spend. Uh, two grand a month on a studio cracker box apartment and that's where you live. I mean, 
you know, the math on that, you can still send home a significant portion of your salary home to your family, right? If you're a congressman from Iowa, if you're a congressman from Nevada, um, certain parts of Florida, if you're a congressman from most of these states, you know, you're able to send enough back to your family where they can live like semi comfortably and fine. You know, so like I understand this one specific congressman, it's tighter because, you know, he has to pay for a second household in New York. And I understand that, you know, that's more of a crunch. Like I get it. But at the end of the day, like I, I just I, I one, I think this is unprofessional. Um, and number two, I just think it's a charade that's like insulting. Like you're doing this at night, but then you're passing trillions of dollars with a pork like I don't understand how you can reconcile doing those two things. So I want to talk about your first point about it being unprofessional because I actually agree with you. And it actually seems that most of the people, most of the people who are doing this, most of the members are men. You don't hear about many women doing this. I'd I'd be curious to see if there were any. And I think there's a reason for that. So my first question is, would it even be possible for a female member of Congress to live in her office and secondly what happens to the female workers when um you know if i'm uh, if i work on the hill and want to come into work early or go into work late and then to find you know your boss sitting there in his non-work clothes not just sitting there sleeping there yeah getting ready for bed doing god knows what um, is that appropriate, especially in this Me Too era? No, it's absolutely not appropriate. I mean, Kelsey, if you just rolled in a cot into the Staley Studio newsroom in your office and you're like, hey, I'm just going to start living here now, they'd be every, people here would be like, Kelsey, you can't do that. You have to <laughs> find your own place to live and show up here five uh, times a week. That's the that's just the way that life works. You don't get to do these crazy, ridiculous things. And also, can we talk about their staffers who get paid significantly less than this uh, but, and are in similar circumstances? And their interns who they don't pay. Most Well, some do pay, but a lot of them are unpaid. They're here not making any money, and they have to figure out housing. I think, if, but most it, staffers only have to pay for one house, one apartment. They're not having to live full time back in their district and then work in D.C. and also, you know, manage to spend half their time here. Most staffers are e- usually located either in D.C. Yeah, or back in the district. Yeah, but I guess my point, I think, still stands because you have interns that are coming in who are from all over the country. A lot of them do not get paid at all, and yet they're still able to make it and make it work and figure it out, right? Hey, like, we, we both have made it work on far less yes. money than that, so it is possible. I'll give you that. I do want to move on, but the last point I want to make on this is that there are actually a few members who are trying to um, pass legislation to make this no longer legal to sleeping in, in their offices, <laughs> so you might be hearing more about this in the news. Um, and there's also some members of Congress who are proposing housing stipends or um, renovating these old sort of dormitory buildings to make them available for members to sleep there. We all know what Bree would say about that. I, I know she would not be supportive. Share your thoughts. If you're on Facebook joining us right now, share your thoughts. All right. The next topic, though, New York Times is coming up again. This time they are calling motherhood motherhood the dumbest job ever. So they published an article with the headline, Job Description for the Dumbest Job Ever. And in it, they wrote the job summary, key responsibilities. One of those key responsibilities, of course, includes keeping your coworkers alive. Your supervisor, interestingly enough, for this job 
is uh, your coworkers who are younger and less qualified for you than you. What do you think of that? Yeah, so here it's like saying that the supervisor is are the kids <laughs> and then they're in charge of you, which is so weird to me. Like my parents growing up, they always made it very clear that they're in charge, right? And that they loved each other more than they loved us. So if we did something bad or tried to get in between them, they'd be like, oh, we like each other more, so we're going to side with each other. You're on the outs. Too bad. And I think that that's fine. Like, I don't want my children to be in charge of me when I eventually have them. Like, I'm the no. boss. I, I've lived long enough. I was the child. Now I'm the adult. Now I, we- I think something's wrong with this author's parenting strategy yeah. if they see the children as the supervisor. Um, she comes off as very whiny in describing the type of employment. She writes, this is a volunteered unpaid full-time job and the the primary purpose of this position is to train the people you love most in the world to leave you forever so I personally found this you can read it all in the New York Times I personally found it very cynical um it was a very cynical view of motherhood I'm not a mother yet but I couldn't help but think about all the women who long to be mothers and can't um, because of infertility or whatever the reason reading this it's it's very insulting, and I think this author really needs to check her fertility privilege and maybe help herself to a gra- glass of gratitude. Absolutely. I 100% agree. So one more thing about motherhood. Um, we wanted to make y'all aware of a study in pediatrics um, that says it's ethically inappropriate for government and medical organizations to describe breastfeeding as natural because the term enforces rigid notions about gender roles so coupling nature with motherhood can inadvertently support biologically deterministic arguments about the roles of men and women in the family for example that women should be the primary caretaker the study says all right so you can read more about this over at independent women's forum Uh, i tried to look into pediatrics it's some type of journal some type of like supposedly medical journal but I can't imagine that this is any legitimate medical journal that's trying to say breastfeeding is um not natural natural. and you know clearly this is just trying to um you know respond to this movement to you know make everyone feel included and not offended and not privileged um because there is a reality that not every not everyone can breastfeed for whatever reason, but that doesn't mean you can ignore science when science says breastfeeding is natural. Absolutely. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we will get to our next segment called This is What Feminism Looks Like. Stay tuned. And we're back with our segment, This is What Feminism Looks Like, where we uphold positive examples of feminism. Okay, so this week, Sarah Huckabee Sanders just sat at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, all the while smiling while she is being viciously attacked by a comedian. Our producer, Lauren, was there, and we're going to talk to her about what happened. She's actually sitting behind the booth, so you're not going to see her on camera, but you will be able to hear what she has to say uh, Lauren, tell us about what happened and about the mood in the room. So I I went with my colleagues from the Daily Signal, and I think we all expected walking in that it was going to be very liberal and they were going to take some cheap shots. But when they started to really go against 
Ivanka and Killian Conway in personal and mean ways. I think that's when kind of our we were jarred by, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that she went there. Um, and I think about halfway through the speech, I just – I booed very loudly. We were in the very back, and I <laughs> – were there other people I heard, booing? I heard you were the loudest booer. Is that true? I mean, I, I think my perspective of doing the show with you guys every week, I know how this is regular, and I just really wanted to show that this isn't normal and that everybody in the crowd wasn't pleased with what she was saying. So, yeah, I felt felt it very appropriate, and I felt very called to be the loudest booer <laughs> in the room. Were there other people booing? What was the mood overall? Were people like kind of sitting, like how many people were really lapping it up, thinking that it was super fun? How many people were a little bit surprised and aghast? Um, So the the way that it works in the middle of the room in the front is where all kind of the hoity-toity famous people sit. The Jim Acostas. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, So I think there they were kind of like just laughing a little bit. But I think as you get farther on the outskirts, People were leaving. Like where people the daily were signal was sitting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were in the we were in the very back. I could I could touch the wall, but um, yeah, there was definitely I definitely wasn't the only one booing. Um, and people were definitely really uncomfortable. I remember as soon as she was done, like the next person literally was like, "Okay, thanks, bye." And I was like, <laughs> well, oh, I guess we're done. In case anyone listening right now hasn't heard what Michelle Wolf, which I can't find, I help but find the irony of her last name. Wolf. I thought that too. Yeah, I thought that too. Um, but can we play a clip um, for those who haven't heard? And of course, we have Sarah Huckabee Sanders. We are graced with Sarah's presence tonight. I have to say, I'm a little starstruck. I love you as Aunt Lydia on The Handmaid's Tale. Mike Pence, if you haven't seen it, you would love it. Every time Sarah steps up to the podium, I get excited because I'm not really sure what we're going to get. You know, a press briefing, a bunch of lies, or divided into softball teams. (laughs) It's shirts and skins, and this time don't be such a little bitch, Jim Acosta. (laughs) I actually really like Sarah. I think she's very resourceful. Like, she burns facts, and then she uses that ash to create a perfect smoky eye. (laughs) Like, maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's lies. It's probably lies. So I want to ask Bree and Lauren your thoughts on whether this was appropriate. Because on one hand, I'm like, this is comedy. We need to stop being so offended by everything. On the other hand, this was the White House Correspondents' Dinner, which represents a bunch of media outlets. And you can't help but just notice how biased they seem when they have someone go after people like Sarah Huckabee Sanders this this hard um, and just have a room full of reporters laughing about it. It seems inappropriate. What do you, what do you guys think? Well, I think what's great about comedy is that it brings people together. And it's supposed to come from a place of fun and goodness. But this, you could tell that her joke started with, oh, I hate Sarah Huckabee Sanders. How do I make her look bad? And it wasn't fun. And it that's why I think everybody in the room felt uncomfortable and some people even left because it, it, you just don't want to be around that. Yeah. I Well, you made a good point during the break, Kelsey, which is that, 
you know, if, if this was a comedian doing this like on a late night show, that's a different forum, right? Like you expect this from um, a, a late night kind of a talk show thing, but the forum itself is like weird. It's it's inappropriate. So the White House Correspondents Dinner did apologize, I believe. Or they they kind of did. They they sent a letter that was like it's this it wasn't sort of apologize. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens next year. I think that they might need to change the format. Um, I think a lot of people realize that this went way too far. Um, but in that clip, you heard the Handmaid's Tale referenced again. This is a theme that keeps coming up again and again in our political discourse. And I don't know about you, but if you don't watch the show, you're probably really frustrated because you're like, what is The Handmaid's Tale? Why does it keep coming up? Uh, Brie has actually been watching the show. She recently wrote a piece on it in The Federalist. So, Brie, first off, what is The Handmaid's Tale? Why do we keep hearing about it? And where can we watch it? Yeah, so you can find it on Hulu. It's an Emmy award-winning dystopian drama based on a novel by Margaret Atwood of the same name. And it depicts this dystopian reality where women um, are forced to, fertile women, because there's not a lot of, like birth rates are down, kind of like what's happening here in the U.S. and in Western Europe. Birth rates are down. There's only a few women that are actually fertile and can bear and carry and deliver children. So those that are fertile, they're herded. Um, and forced and conscripted to serve basically as sex slaves for the elites and to serve as surrogates and, like, bear children for them. So this is, you know, their fate in this dystopian reality. Um, These women have no rights. They're just, you know, slaves. They can't – they're not allowed to read books. Like, books are banned. It's just, like, this really crazy world. So a lot of liberals have co-opted and appropriated (laughs) Handmaid's Tale, like, the capes that they have to wear and the, like, hats. They're called wings that they have to wear. Um, And a lot of times you'll see women dressed as handmaidens uh, when they protest laws restricting – uh, abortion or whenever, you know, th- things like that are talked about because their argument is that, oh, you know, restricting the practice of abortion or regulating at what point it's okay in a pregnancy to dismember and kill a baby is exactly the same as forcing women to serve as sex slaves and be surrogates. And I just think that that comparison is really sloppy um, and really is like a warped perception of reality. It's quite a stretch. Yeah, it's it, like... It's so much. Um, Anyway, so I wrote a piece in The Federalist just pointing out, you know, in both The Handmaid's Tale and in real life, I I think those in charge and the powers that be in The Handmaid's Tale, it's the Aunt Lydia's of the world who is like one of the authoritarians who will like literally beat these women and force them, you know, to like have sex with men and bear children um, with people who, you know, they're not in a relationship with. Um, And then in... Are in real life in our society today, there's lawmakers, bureaucrats, school administrators who are forcing this two very different sexual orthodoxies upon us all, right? In The Handmaiden's Tale, it's this weird, like, crazy surrogate thing. In real life, it's gender fluidity, the notion that gender and sex are, you know, separated from one another. It's pushing the fact that we all are supposed to participate and affirm same-sex marriage despite our religious convictions, um, it's forcing, you know, nuns to provide contraceptives to their employees um, for whatever reason, because, you know, their religious beliefs don't matter. In both cases, you have, you know, these two very different sexual orthodoxies that are being imposed 
upon us all by the powers that be. And in both cases, our constitutional and our natural rights, which are supposed to be one and the same, but sometimes bad course cases like Roe v. Wade distort that. Anyway, that's another dis- <laughs> discussion. Um, but in both cases, their rights are being stomped in order to perpetuate these sexual orthodoxies, right? So I pointed out real-life examples of what's going on. In one case, a first-grade student was actually sent home from a public charter school in California because she called her classmate by the wrong gender. Apparently, her six-year-old classmate was transitioning, which is apparently somehow possible uh, in people's minds. And so she didn't realize that, called the tra- called the classmate by, his, by the old pronoun, uh, not realizing that new pronouns, whatever, by the old name, she got sent home from school and it was, you know, dubbed uh, a gender mishap. I read that she went home crying because she was scared she was going to turn so, into a boy. So that these are two different things. Same charter school. Oh, wow. Yeah. So before the instance where the <laughs> kindergartner or the first grader got sent home, a kindergarten class had a discussion about what it means to be transgender. And some of the kindergartners were just really confused by the discussion that happened, came home crying and shaking one girl because she didn't want to turn into a boy lesson that maybe when you're just learning how to tie your shoes it's not the best time in your life to try to explain what gender fluidity yeah, is yeah or impose and- a sexual orthodoxy that violates our religious and religions and polices children for thinking wrong thoughts like maybe let's not do that absolutely not so <laughs> next time the handmaid's tale comes up in conversations with your liberal counterpart friends maybe take Bree's example and Uh, flip the script on them. Show them that, you know what, if you're going to play this game, we can too. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we will be announcing our Problematic Woman of the Week. And we're back. It is that time of the week to announce our Problematic Woman of the Week. This week, it goes to Kaziah Dom. Uh, who refused to apologize to all the social justice warriors who accused her of appropriating culture and being racist for wearing a Chinese-inspired dress to prom. So the cultural appropriation police came after her when she tweeted a picture of her in this beautiful dress, um, you know, telling her not to appropriate my appropriate my coach, culture, yada, 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 yada. We've heard this before. Uh, she responded saying um, on Twitter, to everyone causing so much negativity, I mean no disrespect to the Chinese culture. I'm simply showing my appreciation to their culture. I'm not deleting my post because I've done nothing but show my love for the culture. It's a effing dress and it's beautiful. She continues to say, to everyone who says I'm ignorant, I fully understand everyone's concerns and views on my dress. I mean no harm. I am in no way being discriminative or racist. I'm tired of all the backlash and hate it and hate when my only intent was to show my love. So we have a clip for you uh, of her recent appearance on Fox and Friends that we will play for you now. I I personally, I wore the dress because... I really respect the culture and I believe it is very beautiful and I wanted to show my respect and love by wearing one of their clothes in admiration of them. If you could do it all over again, would you wear the same dress? Yes, I would definitely wear it again. So one of our writers over at The Federalist, Helen Raleigh, who is awesome, she is herself Chinese and came after a lot of the cultural appropriation police 
to, you know, correct them about some of the claims that they were making about this dress. She corrects them and is like, here's the actual history of the dress. Here's why this isn't cultural appropriation and why we all commit cultural appropriation. Um, she comes after this one, you know, Chinese young man who said, my culture is not your prom dress. <laughs> she is like, um, do you wear traditional Chinese clothing when you go to school? Because if you're wearing Western clothing, you're appropriating Western culture. So maybe let's stop. Maybe let's calm down. You should all go check out her piece over at thefederalist.com and learn a thing or two about traditional Chinese fashion. I try to understand the difference between appropriating culture and, you know, just being a part of culture, because if you think about it, everything from America is appropriated from one place or another. So I try to understand the left's argument and the way they attempt to explain it is by saying um, if, if you're meaning to like make fun of um, or disrespect the culture that you're appropriating from, then it's not okay. But if you respect it, then it is okay. So it's very strange that, you know, they just assumed that this high school student was meaning to offend the culture when really she picked out this dress because she she thought it was beautiful and it was beautiful. She looked bomb in her prom, prom pictures. Beautiful. Um, so I think this was a pretty ridiculous situation, but uh, the most important takeaway, I think, is that we have yet another young, independent-thinking woman who who's not is gonna not going to back down. Yes, not going to back down and kowtow to the PC police who are just <laughs> saying crazy things. Yes. Well, that wraps up our show for this week. Thank you all for tuning in. And as always, if you know a problematic woman, please let us know. You can follow my work on The Daily Signal and on Twitter at Kelsey J. Harkness. And you can follow all of my work over at thefederalist.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Brie underscore Payton. This podcast is a collaboration of The Daily Signal and The Federalist and is produced by Lauren Evans of The Daily Signal. Lauren, thanks, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please support us by rating it and subscribing on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate you sharing problematic women with your friends and for supporting strong conservative women who are standing up for America's culture. 